0: G'day and welcome to Grad Chat. Actually, this is a live Grad Chat. This is your opportunity to find out about graduate research here at Queen's. My name is CJ the DJ and I am your host for this week's Grad Chat. Now, of course, a show like this could not happen without the support of the School of Graduate Studies and CFRC. So, as I say, every single week, thank you very much for that. And speaking of that, this week is, of course, as you know, CFRC's fundraising week. So as the oldest campus community-based station in the country, any assistance you can give to help keep the station going would be appreciated. Now GradChat is one of those groups that benefit from the support of CFRC, so let's see what we can do to help fundraise. There are volunteers waiting to take a call right now, so why not call them on 613 533 CFRC or 2372 and pledge your donation. Now that was all the bit of the formalities over and done with. Well, what I'd like to do now is introduce you to Christine Moon. Now, Christine is doing a dual degree, an MD, combined with a PhD in soci- socio-cultural studies in the School of Kinesiology and Health Studies under the supervision of Dr. Sammy King. So welcome to Grad Chat, Christine. Thanks so much for having me, Colette. I know, and she's getting a bit (laughs) excited because we both got our headphones on here, and it's always a bit strange hearing yourself in in the headphones. But we had a bit of a chat before coming on of what's it like to do a live show, because as you know, a lot of times I do a pre-record, so it's a bit scary for me too. But I've got Christine by my side, so we're going to be perfectly fine for the next half hour. Sounds great. Yes. Now, you're probably wondering what what christine is doing i'm going to talk to her a bit later about what's it like doing a combined program because being a medical doing medical doctor training as well as doing a phd is a, a bit of a tall feat but we can get onto to that a little bit later because i'd like to talk to you first about your research which is the phd side of things sure which does have a bit of a medical bent to it <clears throat> sorry excuse me So your research topic is Experiences of Medical Assistance in Dying, or or the acronym is MADE, for racialized Canadians. So perhaps you can just tell me what is MADE and what is... What is the Canadian context for MAID?
1: Sure. So as you mentioned, MAID or medical assistance in dying um, is when an authorized physician or nurse practitioner provides or administers medication that intentionally brings about a person's death. At that person's request, and so in Canada, uh, medical assistance in dying was decriminalized by the Canadian Supreme Court in February of 2016, and which is pretty huge. Yes, and it's, huge. it's still quite recent. And so in June of 2016, uh, Parliament passed Bill C14, which specifies the conditions under which medical assistance in dying can be provided for Canadians. And so when that happened in Canada, we joined a very small number of countries. Um, Five European countries, including Germany, um, and um, Colombia also was another country. um, And six American states, including Oregon and Washington. So really, um, a lot of countries are thinking about or talking about legalization of some form of medical assistance in dying or another. But Canada is still really at the forefront in terms of legislation.
0: Well, that's one of the things I've always liked about Canada There is pretty forward-thinking and, and progressive in some of these areas that people don't normally want to talk about, mm-hmm. which is really nice that we're, we're living here under that.
1: Yeah, I will say that medical assistance and dying legislation in Canada really came from a push from a patient-led movement, so there is that to think about. And we as a country um, and healthcare practitioners all across, all across Canada are still trying to figure out what that legislation means. So there is a federal legislation, uh, but it is quite vague. The wording is quite um, generous or open to interpretation. Okay. Um, And it's also up to each province and territory, as well as each clinic or hospital, to figure out their own rules and regulations for how they'd like to think about medical assistance and dying for their patients. That must make it
0: pretty tricky, though, because it's easier if it's just one regulation as opposed to being at federal provincial local.
1: Mhm. And I think I think the reason they left it so open is because we don't really know what's going to happen in terms of the Canadian context for medical assistance in dying. There are some as I mentioned European countries that that have legalized it, but even just geography-wise, right? They're right. they're much more contained than Canada. And so I think they really just wanted to leave it a little bit open to give us a little bit more room to grow Right, Mm -hmm. and and I think that's
0: important to be able to grow particularly when it's new you've got to work out those little nuances don't you of what can work without
1: crossing the line Mm -hmm. and what Canadians are comfortable Comfortable with with? Mm -hmm. Um, and of course there's a lot of new research coming out of this area which is really great, a lot of it focuses on um, ethical questions, right. uh, for example, who should be allowed to receive medical assistance in dying and who shouldn't, or um, how do we regulate that, as well as a lot of research coming out about uh, what people think, so general opinion surveys of the general public or of healthcare providers um, on what people think about medical assistance in dying.
0: So before we get into a bit more about why you you wanted to study racialized populations, mm-hmm. what made you want to go into this in the first place? What what said, oh, this is a good topic. It's a
1: bit of a journey, but <laughs>
0: it's bef- always a journey. Isn't yeah, it? <laughs> yeah. I
1: actually I don't know if you know, but Ontario has a forty-hour community service requirement for high school students. Oh, okay. And so at that time, I sort of walked into a long-term care center. Um, and thought I would do, you know, five hours a week and finish my community service requirement in eight weeks and be out of there. It turns out that's not really how it works, and I and I really think that's why the community service requirement is actually a good thing, because it right. really got me into the community. I wasn't really thinking about anything at that yeah. time. Yeah. I was in grade nine. Uh, but I stayed working with long-term care um, homes, or rather volunteering, yeah. um, for the past over a decade. And so really that started my interest in working with older adults and looking at end of life. Right. And um, when I was doing my master's at U of T, they had just legalized medical assistance in dying in my first year. And I was right. uh, doing clinical research there with palliative care patients. And so we were seeing, I was speaking to the patients who were first coming out uh, right. with an interest in medical assistance in dying. The hospital was trying to figure out uh, the best way to serve these patients and to protect our patients as well. Yes. Um, and that led to my specific interest in Medical Citizens 9.
0: Wow, from Grade 9, who'd have thought? Who would have who, thought? Who'd have thought? So you, yeah. your Grade 9-ers out there, there's mm-hmm. lots of you can be learning in these 40-hour volunteer opportunities sure, that you get, yeah. who knows what it's going to lead. So, back to that question I was going to propose first was why are you interested in studying racialized populations?
1: Mm-hmm. So um, there's actually a lot of research that supports um, this idea that racialized people and other people marginalized in different ways, whether that's um, educational background or socioeconomic status more generally, um, receive less health care and receive lower quality health care. Okay. Um, and if you think about medical assistance and dying as a form of health care, um, then that can sort of. Maybe you can guess as to why I'm I'm interested in racialized Canadians, Um, but also opportunities. mm -hmm, um, A study came out last May in the New England Journal of Medicine, which is one of the premier journals of uh, clinical research and work, and they uh, were reporting sort of early results from one hospital network in Toronto on medical assistance in dying, and uh, so they reported. 29 medical assistance and dying patients who had gone through the process. And uh, it wasn't the main focus of the paper, but they reported in their demographic information that Asian patients made up 14% of MAID requests, uh, but only 5% of MAID interventions. So in other words... Only 20% of Asian patients who made a request for medical assistance in dying received it, nice. compared to 75% of white patients. Okay. And so that's quite a big discrepancy. And also, no people of other races either received or requested medical assistance oh, in right? dying. And so, But this is, of course, preliminary data, only 29 patients, but... There's a big gap there. I don't know. It's hard to tell what's going on just from demographic data, but um, it did lead me to some questions. For example, how are racialized Canadians thinking about medical assistance in dying that's different? Right. Than white ca- Canadians, if they're thinking about it at all. Is it an issue of healthcare access? So maybe they're not. I mean, you need a lot of resources to request medical assistance in dying. For example, you need to have a written request, it needs to right. be approved Get that by a healthcare as well. Yes, it needs to be approved by a healthcare provider that's not your own. You have to have witnesses. And so um, it could be a, a barrier to accessing a physician who's willing to say that you're eligible for me, It could be just barriers in terms of, like, if I don't speak English as my first language, right. writing a written request and having it witnessed and signed. It could be a matter of not knowing or thinking about medical assistance and dying. Or, or could, could part of it also be not part of your culture? Right, it could also be, you know, it's not something I would consider. For example, um, I'm ethnically Korean, and um, in Korean culture, traditionally, it's sort of taboo to speak about death, right. especially with older adults and especially right. with people who are dying, because it's thought to hasten death. And so, perhaps people aren't having aren't even having the conversations. Right. Um, and of course, uh, Canada is home to people of many different cultures, and and because people in different cultures think about death differently mm-hmm. and I'm not saying that white Canadians are all one homogenous culture either right so yeah, sure. but just some of the things that I've had been thinking about after seeing those results
0: yeah and I, and I guess well I guess this comes to the next question is you know why is this research important and how will it contribute to the literature because the stats you just gave us were the ones that actually asked for it mm-hmm But there's probably a lot of other people out there that, like you said, might not have even thought about it, but could if they were in that situation Mm -hmm. of, you know, enough's enough.
1: Yeah. Or maybe they don't want it at all. And and that's fine to know as well. Um, So I guess uh, when I'm thinking about my research, I always think, well, everybody dies. Yes, And so um, if we're providing a service like medical assistance in dying, it's really important that we're giving all patients equal and equitable access to it right. so that everybody who wants it can, can receive it. And so I'm not advocating for everybody to receive MAID no. by any means. No. But if but, they want it. Right. But if we're providing a service, a uh, healthcare service, that people have the legal right to, then they should ha- be able to access it. Right. Um, and also when somebody dies or is dying... They, they have biological processes going on in their body, but it's not only a biological fact.
0: Right. So death
1: is also social. Right. And so how people die, how people think about dying, and how, how the people around them are affected is all affected by uh, where they live, the laws and the policies that surround them, the institutions that carry out those laws and policies, um, and the direct culture of the people that they're living with.
0: I guess it also would highlight too the the resources that are required, not just monetary resources, but human resources required mm-hmm. to go through this whole process. From one of thinking about it to, you know, as you said, there's, there's various steps you have to go to go through before you can even before they even say yes, it's
1: okay. Of course, yeah, and often, not always, but often, uh, patients who are thinking about medical assistance and dying in a very real way. Have an illness that causes them significant pain right. or distress, and so they're already in the healthcare system um, and they have many medical appointments. You have yeah. to fill out paperwork, you have to see other medical healthcare provi- providers who will approve you for medical assistance in dying. You have to wait the recommended or the required waiting period. Right, in the meantime, you're still in pain. Yeah, and so they're. It does take a lot of resources, and so we want to be able to make sure that we're using our resources well, but also that people have access to those. Now, you, you touched on this a little bit before. Mm-hmm. Your undergraduate degree,
0: sorry, your undergraduate thesis on ethnographic research, studying, study examining the ideals for end of life and death mm-hmm. among Korean Canadian mm-hmm. um, elders, and your master's research was a clinical research study among patients with advanced cancer who were receiving palliative care. So how's your research and experiences thus far led you to your PhD work? Because it's obviously a natural progression. Right, but yeah. But what made you go to that next step?
1: Mm-hmm. So I guess if I if I can bring you back to high school where I was in those years. You sure can. We love um, high school. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was a long time ago for me. <laughs> <laughs> Even longer for me. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> but... Um, what I encountered there, so my parents uh, immigrated to Canada from Korea, and I was born in Canada, but my grandparents still live in Korea and so we will go sometimes to visit them, and uh, one thing I noticed in the long-term care homes in Toronto that I was working with was that Um, I was meeting a lot of Korean seniors who were in these long-term care homes. So so these are public facilities funded by the Ministry of Health and Long-Term Care. Um, And they're there because they can't take care of themselves, usually for medical reasons, but also others. And they had no one to speak with. They had no one really... People were providing medical care, but not cultural care. So they weren't eating Korean food. And... It's changing a little bit, but according to Korean culture, as with many other East Asian cultures, we have this idea of filial duty. So the idea that when I'm little, when I'm a child, my parents will take care of me, and then when I grow up, I will take care of my parents. And so it's changing. The the thoughts are changing a little bit, but it's still the sense that if I put my parents in a long-term care facility or a nursing home or something... Uh, similar that I've sort of abandoned them and right. so I'm meeting all these all these elders in these long term care homes who don't really have a lot of agency, they don't really have a voice, they have no one to speak with. Right. Um, and also wondering about, well, do they feel abandoned and, and what do they see as the ideal for their end of life or their last days? Right. And so that led me to my undergraduate thesis in anthropology uh, where I studied precisely that, looking at how older adults in my community, in the Korean commun- Canadian community in Toronto, were thinking about end of life um, and also how they were nego- negotiating that with their adult children who often had grown up. Right. Grown up in right. Canada. Yeah. Um, And that, of course, led me to uh, a broader interest in end-of-life care and looking at uh, palliative care, and that's where I did my master's. Um, and as I mentioned, that's where I really first spoke with patients who were interested in medical assistance in dying, who had questions about it. At the same time that the country and the hospital that I was at as well were trying to figure out uh, the best way to think about medical assistance in dying. It seems like
0: you're going on the right track though, doesn't it? I mean it's it's a natural progression that you're doing and I guess another part of that is and this is the research side, but of mm-hmm. course you're doing your M D as well. Yes. Even though I know you haven't quite started that part of, of the um, your degrees. Mm-hmm. So how will you tie together your work as a researcher and your work as a physician, as a clinician, scientist?
1: Yeah, so I think I'm really lucky at Queens, both as a, a medical an M D PhD student and then sort of as a setting the stage for my later career. Right. But, of course, I hope to do good clinical work with my patients in the clinic. That's good. <laughs> and I hope to do good research work as a future academic. But I think, really, I'm in a unique position to be able to do both. So, And, and to let them inform each other. So, right, right. So um, my patients in the clinic will... Hopefully, allow me to think about research questions or about what they're thinking about in a very real way right. and that'll inform my research questions in the direction of my research um, as it had done for my master's as well um, but also that the research that I do outside of the clinic will hopefully help to improve access to health health care outcomes or people's feelings about health uh, mm-hmm. for patients in my clinic as well yeah. I'm going to take a quick break sure. because
0: I because it is the fundraising week. I just want to make a quick PSA, um, public service announcement for everyone, um, just to sort of say, you know, why I volunteered for CFRC. Well, it's actually an opportunity for me, myself, even to learn to new, a new skill. Plus, it was a no-brainer when it came to the School of Graduate Studies to see if we could you know have our own show. So what better place for our grad students and postdocs to hone their skills at disseminating their research to a wider audience, such as what? Christine's doing for us today and you know it's not easy getting rid of all the field specific jargon but I think you can testify that they're actually doing a really great job when they come on to a grad chat Um, and of course we couldn't do that without the help of CFRC and it would be such a shame if we couldn't run these sorts of programs every week because it's certainly been helping our students. So anything you can give to help out, that would be fantastic. Don't forget to give them a call if you, if you want to do a pledge on 613-533-CFRC. And so, uh, yep, help. Let's, let's see if we can help them out. I, I did mine a little bit earlier, and I got my little goodie bag as well from them, which is really nice. And uh, then, we're, then, um, then we'll see if we can hit the, the target that they've got for this year because we need some new generators and things here at the studio. So on that note... I want to ask a couple more questions, Christine. I know I'm flipping a little bit here, but it's an important week. And what uh, Christine's doing is really, really important too. And so what I'd like to ask you now is, it's kind of following on from the last question we had, was why did you want to do a PhD MD? Because that is not easy. But people need to know, it's, I mean, it's doing two programs. The PhD alone is four years, and MD is four years plus residency. That's a lot of extra study that you're doing. So what made you want to go that route, other than it seems like an obvious fit from what you've been talking about, what you've done in the past, the research, and you obviously got a passion for this sort of
1: area. Mm-hmm. I th- yeah, as I mentioned, doing them together really offers a unique opportunity mm-hmm. to think about my clinical training and my research training and allow those to grow hand in hand so that in the future I'm prepared to do both and together, not just separately. And... Of course, doing them together also doesn't save much time, but it allows me to think about uh, what I want in the future as an academic and as a clinician in terms of the kinds of questions that I would be interested in asking or the kind of practice that I'd like to have. Right, right. Um, And also having that PhD more than the project just alone, I think it really is important for clinicians who are interested in doing research to have research training so formal research training that allows you to do not just any research but good and sound research right yeah because this is probably going to sound awful but when
0: you watch grey's anatomy and they do some research on the sign i think how much they really know what they're doing but now I know maybe they've done similar stuff.
1: <laughs> yeah, so many clinicians now usually have a master's or a PhD, right. especially if you're in an academic centre like Queen's, right? Um, to be able to do uh, research um, as well as you do the clinical work. Okay, and it doesn't stop there for Christine, because,
0: of course, like most of our grad students, you have a lot of extracurriculars as well that you you get involved in. And um, I understand it's next week, isn't it, the Queen's University Health and Human Rights Conference is on, which you're a part of.
1: Yes, so we have our 18th annual Queen's University Health and Human Rights Conference and our topic this year is um, pharmaceuticals, recreationals and other drugs so we'll be focusing on pharmaceutical drugs, pharma care, medical marijuana, which was recently, um, or marijuana rather, more generally, which was recently legalized in Canada as well. Uh, We have a really fun debate coming up uh, where the two sides will be debating uh, whether or not we should legalize all drugs in Canada, like some European countries have, um, and some really great keynote speakers coming as well. And can people still register for that? Or? Yep, you can register. You can just uh, type in HHRC on our Facebook page and look us up. And uh, uh, we do have a small fee for tickets just because we're trying to support our community. So uh, we'll be holding our Saturday um, actually at the Rideau Heights Community Centre. So going nice. off of campus. Queen's Campus. But um, if you're not able to pay the fee, then we all c- we can also waive that for you as well. So,
0: What a great opportunity to listen to some great keynote speakers and also mingle with people there, because some of those conversations, I'm sure, are going to be quite interesting.
1: I hope so, for, yeah. For
0: everybody. <laughs> And then the other thing you sort of do too, I mean, it looks like you've been doing this since grade nine anyway, is you volunteer at a Hospice kin- Kingston. So I mean, you, you seem to do a lot of things that are a natural fit.
1: Yeah, I guess sort of my my interests and my <laughs> academic interests all sort of collide, which perhaps is a good thing. It is. Um, but Hospice Kingston, I've only uh, just started volunteering with them earlier this year, actually. Okay. But um, just doing s- a little bit of volunteer work there and hoping to increase my involvement. I still am connected with... Um, so, after actually I finished high school in Toronto, they had opened a Korean language uh, long term care home oh, that's in the city of Toronto. So, 60 beds and they serve Great. Korean food. Most of the staff speak Korean. Right. Uh, most of the residents are Korean um, and they do sort of cultural activities as well. Um, and so, I'm still connected back there.
0: That's good because, particularly mm-hmm. as you were mentioning earlier, that sometimes now. Our elders who are here and they're not getting the support that they thought what a great way of putting some sort of support back particularly in your own within your own culture
1: mm-hmm. and because it's a Korean language um, center I feel like adults have much more agency right than the people who are living there um, the councils they, so they have their residence councils they have more Well, more Korean participants, so normally in in the English language, long-term care homes, you rarely see uh, racialized people at all. It's mostly people who feel like they have agency and also people who speak English who come to those things. And so uh, really have an opportunity for these people to have a voice in in the place that they live and eat their own food and, and things like that. Well, it looks like look we oh look at that we've got one minute to go.
0: So that that went really quickly, didn't it? It did.
1: <laughs> it got, A lot faster than I thought it was. Yes.
0: So you've got lots to say and lots of really interesting stuff to tell us. So I, I appreciate you coming on, Christine. And thanks so
1: much for having me and talking me. about
0: everything that you've been doing. Um, I'm going to say good luck because you've got a long way ahead because you're only just starting your PhD and you still got that MD to do as well. I do. I do have that whole MD to do as well. But I think provided you keep the passion going, which you obviously exude a lot of um, enthusiasm for what you're doing, I think you're going to be perfectly fine. Thank you so So. much. It's been a pleasure. So that's it, everyone. Okay, well, our live show has come to an end, which was a bit sad because I was actually really getting into it then. But don't forget, you can download the show tomorrow from either iTunes or SoundCloud or now, of course, on the CFRC podcast. Just type in Grad Chat. And don't forget, if you're able to call in, place some funds to help keep, keep CFRC afloat for another year. Until next week, this is CJ the DJ signing off with a big hooray.